Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Ever since I can remember, my mom has reinforced knowledge is power to my two sisters and me. As a teen, she left the comforts of her life in Hong Kong, went to nursing school in England, and then in the States, married my dad. In the chaos of raising three girls in a foreign land, working part-time as a registered nurse, we saw her live her mantra by diligently taking classes at a local college to earn her bachelor's of science. My guest today also holds deep respect and passion for education and is dedicated to technology enabling teaching and learning. Whether you have kids at home in Zoom class or are an adult learner, digital learning is front and center. You'll be hearing from a leader who's done pioneering research and led product and engineering teams, including driving an open source digital learning software used by more than 55 million learners worldwide called Open edX Platform, or initiative rather. Seeing higher education ripe for innovation, she co-founded an AI-powered digital learning platform, which we'll hear more about, and an AI-enabled collaboration platform. She's also a researcher and lecturer at the MIT Media Lab and Boston University's Questrom School of Management. Meet business executive and educator, the managing director of SME Learning and CEO of Riff Analytics, Beth Porter. Beth, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about uh, topics that are near and dear to my heart, which are education, technology, and higher ed, and professional development, all the things that we, uh, you know, sort of have in the front of our minds today, as we're thinking about how to learn, you know, together online, super hard, really interested in the problem space. Yeah, you're uh, a saint, I think, for targeting something that everyone's like, yeah, 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 we need change, we need to be better. <laughs> and you are inspiring me because you are um, are driving that change. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, sometimes I see the need to really get back to basics in learning, and you're really helping revolutionize the space. So I think it's going to be fascinating for listeners. Before we dive into all that teaching and learning, though, um, I'm really grateful if you'd share with listeners a bit about your journey and just help them to get to know who you are. I have always been uh, really interested in actual learning, right? Even as a kid, I was a tutor of my friends and, you know, I was myself very much um, an introspective learner, somebody who thought about their own learning, even from a young age. I think people probably thought I was pretty weird <laughs> and kind of a nerd. I was very interested in math, which I ended up studying in college. I was very interested in puzzles and games. And, you know, I had like very thick glasses. Um, <laughs> this was just the picture of somebody who was clearly very motivated by learning. And, um, you know, I sort of fit all the stereotypes you might think of as a sort of a nerdy, nerdy kid. It didn't, it didn't really bother me that much, to be honest with you. I know lots of people sort of reflect on their past and say, oh, I was such a nerd. And, you know, I felt teased. And I, I didn't, that's not how I felt about it. I felt very confident in my own skin. I felt very supported by my, my parents. Um, They're very cerebral, introspective people themselves. And it was always very safe to be like that. Um, I was also, I think, somewhat ironically, an athlete. I spent a lot of time in a swimming pool, on a soccer field, on a baseball field. It was just the other part of myself that allowed me to have all the social interaction and things that, you know, I think a lot of people who think of nerds don't believe that they ever get. <laughs> but I had both, I mean, it was sort of both parts of my life and they were both complementary to each other. Um, I didn't think that it didn't seem strange to me that I had, that I could be a jock and a, and a, a nerd or a geek at the same time. So I, I felt very comfortable with that. And I think my my grandparents were both educators and um, it was a value in our family, just not unlike you, right? Like it's deep respect for education, deep respect for um, teaching and learning as a profession. 
as a true profession. Um, and um, nobody ever uttered the phrase, you know, those who can, you know, can do whatever their profession is and those who can't teach. Nobody would ever say that in our family. That's just not how it was. We really um, embraced that. So um, I grew up in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, and uh, we had um, not much going, growing up, but we did have um, dedication to education. So I went to a private school um, all the way up through um, uh, through high school, and um, that was very formative for me for a lot of reasons, not least of which is that these were spaces of high degree of um, empathy and community and a strong dedication to the social space of learning. So I went to a Quaker high school, and uh, that was very much a, a formative experience in terms of me learning how to be with other people and to respect every member of the community, to value and laud every member of the community, and um, and find the not just the goodness but the the depths and um, sort of what's special about everybody, and um, and learn how to. You know, you you know, use those people as part of your how you grow and and learn in your life. Um, so I got that, and um, it, it has been something that I draw upon uh, really every day. That experience of um, of recognizing the the value in others, and um, and not seeing people for their weaknesses as much as seeing people for their strengths, and trying to pull that up and out of people, even when they don't recognize it themselves. So um, that that experience has uh, been something that I I draw on a lot. Um, yeah, so so that's early me. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about later me and how I formed the companies that I'm running today, but um, you know, we can, I can I can get into that now if you like. Yeah, well, we'll go there. Let me just pause a bit on the youth. So this is really sure. awesome. The, the I love the juxtaposition of jock and <laughs> geeky brainiac with sure. all this confidence. And so I'm wondering, do you recall ever like wondering if I should do this, if I could do this, or were you just like a take no prisoners kid? It's a really good question. I certainly had moments of reservation here and there, but you know, the funny thing was is that I grew up in this is gonna sound funny, but I grew up a short person in a tall family. And I think something about that just sort of inspired me to just have to take my own, if you know what I mean. Um, that was I was like kind of a small, mighty, you know, kid who just, you know, wasn't gonna wasn't gonna be cowed by my larger, uh, you know, uh, family members, by the way, all very supportive people, but, you know, just physically and physical intimidation should not be discounted, right? All our presidents are tall. (laughs) There are lots of people who really value, like if I meet somebody, it's interesting because if you meet somebody on, you know, on Zoom or whatever video platform you're using, you don't know how tall they are. You have no idea. I, I met for the first time some of the members of my team and they all looked at me and they're like, oh my gosh, you're so short. <laughs> so I think that, you know, I tried to be a tall personality in a, in a short body. So I think a lot of that just was my own sort of attitude toward how to get over my, uh, my height challenge. <laughs> um, but on top of that, I think I also got an enormous amount of support from my mom and dad. I think um, my dad in particular, just like couldn't have cared less that we were, I have a twin sister. Um, and so it was just the, the two of us. He couldn't have cared less that we were girls. He just wanted us to be able to have all the opportunities that boys had. And at least in my town at that time, for example, um, there were no girls um, sports teams like for soccer, um, which is you know common today, but it just didn't exist then. So, you know, um, when laws passed that allowed uh, girls to have equal access to um, sports, my dad signed me right up. Uh, we stood in the line and got to the table, you know, where they were doing signups for the quote unquote boys soccer league. And he said, no, uh, you have to let her in. She's a girl and she gets to play. And it doesn't matter what you're, you know, what it says there. She, you, we're standing here until she gets allowed to en- enroll in the, in the sports program and the soccer program. And then, um, you know, we did that and he was very, he was very determined to make sure that I had equal ox- access to opportunities. He encouraged me in math and science all the way through. I got to college and was thinking about majoring in something else. And he's like, don't drop math. Got to stick with it. You're good at it. It's important. You got to be there where the action is happening and that's in math and science. So I think all of that 
really helped me just continue to stick with it, even when I had detractors. And I had detractors. I was in um, I was in college, and I was thinking about enrolling early enrollment in a master's program um, where you could start it in your junior year and then finish both your undergraduate and your uh, master's program in a five-year program. I went to the advising office. And I said, hey, I'm thinking about enrolling in this uh, math and science education program uh, over in the other, you know, in one of the other colleges. And, I, and I'm not kidding you. The woman in the advising department looked at me just blank and said, well, you're a woman. Um, she might have said girl, actually. Uh, and girls don't know math. So I don't I don't think that's a good path for you. Absolutely wow. straight. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I just, you know, there are lots of people who wanted to get in my way and I just was pretty determined and, um, you know, it wasn't without its hiccups, but, you know, you really did have to, you really had to stick with your guns a lot in the early days. And I have many other women who are, you know, who got on a tech um, science or, you know, math engineering path with me. And, you know, you've got to find people who can be there to support you. You have to just, um, you know, sort of turn a shoulder to the people who would be your detractors. And you have to be really passionate and dedicated to that path. And um, it's it's definitely hard at times. You're so amazing. I, I loop back on the height thing because I'm not super tall either. And <laughs> to this day, and we would line up in, in the all-purpose room back then, and I was never at the end. I was very proud of not being the absolute. And and then to this day, Beth, when I look at someone, someone could be like five, ten, or eleven, and in my mind, I'm like, oh, they're just they're like a few inches taller than I am. And I, <laughs> I in my own mind, am huge. I'm huge. And only when I look at pictures and I look at that, I'm like, wow, I am a shrimp compared to these people. It's so funny how one's own perception of your mightiness is so powerful. So I love how you really took that on. And a huge shout out to your father for being like, oh, we are standing in line here. And my daughter will, in fact, be playing on this team. And for all the men out there who are doing that for their own kids and for others, Thank you, because it really, really makes a difference. Um, with yeah. your twin sister, I'd love to hear about the twin dynamic. Were you fairly similar and super tight? Or I'm just wondering yeah. how that relationship is. Oh, yeah. No, we weren't similar at all. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe people who would meet us and say, oh, no, gosh, you're, you know, a lot like your sister. But, you know, as we were growing up, I think it was we, we felt the um, we felt the need to differentiate um, from each other right? We felt the need not to be lumped in together and be thought of as one thing, right? A unit. Um, we are certainly very close and we have a lot of shared, you know, we share values and share characteristics, but, you know, she was much more outgoing, um, much more sort of people oriented. She really understood the personal dynamics of relationships and friendships. And I sort of said, well, those are probably important and I should figure that out at some point, <laughs> but I wasn't as oriented toward others. I was much more oriented, as you can probably tell from my narrative so far, very much oriented toward myself and sort of like figuring the world out. And, um, and I got to this, you know, I got to the place of figuring other people out much later than she did. The sports part of it, when you think about um, the, the learning, I mean, I mm -hmm. guess I would just ask, you know, and you played quite a few different sports. So just a bit on what yeah. you took away from that sporting experience. The funny thing is that, you know, I, I played, I swam, which is, you know, very oriented at individual sport fundamentally. I mean, you have relays and of course you're all the team points get gathered and then you win against another team, but, you know, still fundamentally a, an individual sport. And I enjoyed more than anything else, um, let less the competitive aspect of that and more the sort of self-improvement aspect of it, you know, being fit, um, feeling good in, in your body, uh, getting, uh, perfecting the strokes and, and learning how to just swim with great, um, you know, with that great skill and grace. And we, you know, we dove and we did synchronize, you know, like whatever the Y had on offer, we did it because um, we spent a lot of time at the YMCA. Um, but but soccer was this very, very different experience for me um, that was not fundamentally about self. It was about team. And um, the teams on which the other members of the team understood the purpose, right, that you were there to win together, those were 
the, the best experiences I ever had in soccer, when we had people who were showboats or thought that they were better than everybody else, we had to accommodate them in the way that we play, just get the ball to so-and-so. All those experiences were, were never as satisfying, never as enriching as those in which we really fundamentally understood that we could do better together if we understood how to work as a team. And I have carried that with me all the way through my entire uh, professional and personal life and just sort of the, the value in the collection, right? The collection of people, the collection of skills, the, un, you know, the silent communication, the understanding of others and how you can uh, all benefit by having those um, tight dynamic interactions. I mean, that's a huge part of being in particular on a soccer team. It's just you have to get there or it doesn't work. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, we were gymnasts as kids and soccer, just the sheer running. I mean, you know, and I watch World Cup and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just exhausted. Like, it's a serious, just yeah. the, 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 that physical part of it, I'm, I'm blown oh, away. Oh, you run four miles in a game, you know, four or five sometimes depends on the, the position you play. But before we get to the college and after, I'm wondering what, and I get the detractors, you know, people that your parents were kind of there just to support you. Was there anything you recall that was truly hard for you? Truly hard. I, it was really hard to go to high school um, because we were young. Uh, we got put in a private, uh, at that time, Catholic or Episcopal, I'm not sure, uh, grade school. And so we started um, that experience young, went, you know, graduated from eighth grade very young and then ended up in high school very young. I was not socially prepared for high school at all. And in particular, the high school that I went to, although a very um, warm and welcoming environment with lots of wonderful people, it was also sort of like filled with social animals. And I was not prepared. I did not have the social skills needed to really understand, you know, sort of the dynamics of the older students. Um, you know, lots of high schools are, you know, they're really focused on all of the hormonal, sexual tension and who's dating who and all this gossipy stuff. And it was like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And it's normal, like very normal. There was nothing strange about the environment at all from that point of view, which I, you know, sort of realized later on when, um, you know, my first job out of college was a high school teacher. Um, but at that time I was like, oh, no, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> I don't know how to act. I don't know who to trust. I'm just going to work hard and do my sports and hopefully I'll figure it out eventually. It was very <laughs> difficult. Well, thank you for sharing that. And obviously you did. Um, okay. High school teacher out of college. Give us a quick uh, um, inside look on the college experience, because I get that you're academic. Was college hard? Did you find the studying super hard or did you just breeze through because you were so well prepared? Uh, you know, it was rocky, um, but not in the way that I expected. I actually took a year off between high school and college. I, um, we, like I said, we were young, graduating from, uh, you know, our grade school experience, and then subsequently young, graduating from high school. And my parents just said, "Hey, you know, all that social stuff you need to figure out before you get to college. You're going to go take another year." <laughs> so, I went um, in the AFS American Field Service program to of all the places on the planet, Luxembourg. And um, I lived there with a family for a year. I went to an additional year of high school. They, they have more years of high you know, more years of school than we do as a sort of a base education that they get. Um, so I was um, in with everybody who was my same age, but they were uh, troisième, which is two years from graduation. And, um, and I just really, uh, use that experience to figure out how to make college be not as awkward <laughs> as high school was at the beginning. So once I got through, then I'll, that's a whole other you know podcast is talking about my experience in Luxembourg. What a what a wild place! Um, but you know that really helped. So that when I went to college, I was really prepared both for the academic aspect and the social aspect. The one thing I did in in uh, college, my first year, is I got a little bit cocky. And so instead of doing what my uh, advisor recommended, which was to take four classes, you know, as a entry point for college, I took five. And lo and behold, that fifth class pretty much crushed me. And I think I got a D. Um, didn't fail, but, you know, close. And that was definitely a new experience for me. 
That's that's hilarious. So um, the uh, in the college years, I mean, fun. What would you what would you say? Is oh, I dine, yeah, dynamite. Loved every bit of college. Made a ton of good friends. Still, you know, there's a small group of my uh, uh, college friends. You know, people that I meet. I met actually my freshman year in the dorm who still get on um, every three week, every whatever periodic Zoom calls just to continue to chat and be social. Uh, some of them have stayed in much closer contact, but they're all sort of still people who I know. And, you know, it's funny because some of our professional lives are getting connected. It's really wild. So we didn't go to the same places or even the same areas of the world or the country, but now our lives are reconnecting through like entrepreneurship programs and things like that. So it's it's been it was a wonderful experience. I met my husband there. Uh, we got married at Cornell. You know, oh, like I we really, <laughs> we really did the whole thing. <laughs> I love it. I love the same giant smile for Big Red as you do. So it's just joyous, and it was a pleasant surprise to learn we both uh, have such roots there. So yeah. um, talk about the senior year, getting a job, being a real person. Was it? I mean, high school teacher at a college is you know, maybe not, maybe it was what you planned. I'm, I'm curious what the thinking was then. Oh, no, it was 100% what I planned. Uh, the funny thing was, is when I was in high school, and this was done with great affection, I just remember my uh, high school friend, Martha Dota, uh, made this nickname up for me. She used to call me Teach. <laughs> and, you know, I, I again, I was very intellectual. It was really, I lived a life of the mind. I was unapologetic about, like, just loving to learn and all that kind of thing. And to my my friends recognized that in me and uh, said with no malice, uh, you know, this was just me. So when I got out of college, I was very intentional. I was going to become a teacher and I became a teacher. It was a pretty straight path, you know. Um, one of the things I did recognize in myself, though, is when I did my teaching practicum in college, one of the things that was really difficult and disheartening for me was teaching in the public schools in rural New York. And it wasn't even so much the student population. I, I really had great relationships with the students and even many of my you know, colleagues, uh, the math department colleagues that I taught side by side with. It was the administration that really kind of kicked me in the kicked me in the teeth. I didn't I didn't like the administrative overhead, the the, the burden of that, the, the degree to which it just dampens all your spirit when you are part of public education. And so, you know, even though I sent my own kids to the public schools. I just have enormous, you know, uh, empathy and sympathy for uh, public school teachers because it, it's not even just the teaching. It's not the students. It's it's really the overhead, the burden of public schools that I think really, really gets them. And it got me. And so my first teaching job was in a in a private in a private high school. I went to a, a Quaker school actually and taught there. Wow. Can you say a bit more about this? Because this is new to me. I, I um when you talk about the the administration, help folks with a day in the life of the public teacher, what is it that they are um, drawn into? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really all about um, having to report and justify yourself. You know, it's there's not this is not a place of freedom. Most schools, most school districts, most states um, impose an enormous, um, you know, sort of a documentary and um, sort of a burden, a documentary burden on being able to justify what topics you're going to cover, your adherence to the curriculum, your reporting of any transgressions of your students, the you know uh, being able being able to say um, with confidence that you did uh, you did everything that was required under the you know the aegis of the law, um, having to document um, students who are live outside of the you know the sort of normative. Um, uh, you know, boundaries of, of uh, learning. So if they have IEPs or other kinds of uh, special conditions that you have to accommodate, not having a lot of help for that accommodation, and then on top of that, having to document all the things that you've done, it differs a lot state to state. But I definitely, you know, my uh, friends and, and former colleagues and current colleagues who have worked in public education, you know, they just sort of take it on the chin. They've learned how to, you know, sort of um, make it work for them. But for me, it just was, it took so much away from what I wanted to do, which was to creatively reimagine how one could teach the subjects that we've taught for so many years. And in my case, it was math. And um, I, just, I just didn't want to do that other stuff. I just, I didn't want it to be part of my daily life. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Thanks for helping us understand that a bit better. And, you know, it's, 
I reflect, you know, having the the Quaker upbringing, the valuing of really every person for who they are and seeing that value and seeing how special we are with the sports, with, you know, just your, your parents' support. Like, it's, you're just like a natural born leader. Like all those, you know, no one was timing <laughs> you for that, but it's so clear to me, like you were ready to go. So um, after you did your teaching, just share with us, you know, your career trajectory and how you made the moves you did. Yeah. Yeah. The people who have heard me tell this story before are like, oh, Beth, he's telling that story again. But I, it's one of the funniest stories I think I, I can share about how I happened to become um, in how I happened to end up in the education technology sector through software. Um, I was a teacher in, I, I live now in the Boston area, and I was a teacher at Middlesex School out in Concord, Massachusetts. And it just, wasn't what I wanted after being in sort of the warm and welcoming environment of a, of a Quaker uh, school in Pennsylvania. When I came up uh, to New England and I went to a New England prep school, wow, attitudinally very, very different, not um, the same kind of experience that I had had myself in high school or that I'd had teaching in um, at George School. So, that was a brisk one year. <laughs> that was one and done. And I was sitting in my husband's office in, uh, in uh, Cambridge and uh, using the internet because it was better than our internet at home and um, trying to figure out how to get a different kind of a job, you know? Um, and I, I searched for, um, cause I, you know, I had mathematics in my background and I thought, well, the software industry is booming. My husband was working at a software consulting firm. I was like, well, I wonder if there's a companies that do mathematics software. There's got to be, right? Math, it can totally be automated. There's got to be software. So I typed mathematics software into the browser and I came up with a company called MathSoft. And I was like, well, that's that's hilarious. Uh, what do they do? And so I, you know, sort of learned a little bit about what they were. I mean, it was very low, uh, you know, low web presence at that time. People didn't have really big web pages or, you know, websites uh, in the mid nineties, but I, um, I realized it was across the street. <laughs> I was looking at the headquarters of the, of the office and I was like, Oh, well, I obviously have to go find out what this is about. It's kismet. They're right there literally staring at them. So I, um, at that time I came into the office, they didn't have a job. Didn't matter. I came into the office with a paper resume and a paper cover letter letter. And I gave it to the receptionist and I said, I'd like to, I'd like to work here. And then they called me like three days later and said, would you like the crummiest job on the planet, which is working in support? And I said, sure. What do I have to do? So I started at the very bottom and, um, and basically taught people math on, on the phone because it was a mathematics software platform. And a lot of people couldn't remember the math, right? It was an automation, it was automated software. So if they were trying to figure out like, you know, stress and strain calculations and couldn't remember the formulas and they got stuck, um, I would, I would unstuck, unstick people. And um, so it's basically just teaching math in a different context. And um, in the end, I spent 11 years at that company uh, in various roles. And my last role there was a director of engineering. Oh. Um, OMG. I'm like, wow, that is the coolest thing ever. Mark across <laughs> the street with your fancy cover letter and paper I mean, resume. I'm here to, I'm here to serve. <laughs> sure. I'll do everything. Wow. Okay. So uh, that's early days of. Um, oh yeah. 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 We that was, we would still, uh, you know, we still printed, uh, you know, CDs, <laughs> floppy disks. Actually, when I first started there, we were still uh, putting our software on floppy disks, putting them in boxes, selling them in stores, that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So after 11 years, uh, did someone come knocking on your door? Or did you? Uh, oh no, I vacated with all haste from uh, the company that acquired us. So I was working at Massoft blissfully, you know, hopping along in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the, uh, you know, the shadow of MIT. It was started by a guy from MIT. It was just sort of like this amazing environment in which literally every person who worked there was sort of weird and it, it embraced the weird. Everybody really loved each other. They loved working together. It was like the family, you know, like your absolutely classic work family everybody really supported each other and had you know like everybody's back and even when we would i wrote a 
blog about this at one point that, you know, even when we fought vigorously about things, the fighting was respectful, right? We understood that we're all trying to make something and make something ambitious and better. And that that sort of like disagreement to get to the high yield, you know, better product, better experience, better algorithm, whatever, that was all just part of the mix of, of being really invested in in ourselves and um, in our team, you know, in our in each other and in the product and the and the company itself. So we got bought. That was that was sort of the environment of working in the company. And then we got bought and that was not the environment afterwards. <laughs> so after I dutifully helped my team sort of make the journey from the company that was to the company that uh, acquired us, I made my exit as early as I thought I could and still, you know, be a responsible manager for my, my, my team. And, um, and a friend who worked there had recently gone to uh, Pearson. And when I was, um, or was about to go to Pearson, and when I was in the middle of the uh, recommendation of him to his um, future manager, she said, huh, you know, you sound kind of interesting. How would you like to come here and have a job. <laughs> so I got recruited on the mm-hmm. call that was the recommendation of my friend. Well, I went to Pearson and, you know, Pearson gets a bad rap. And I think some of it is very much warranted around, you know, loss of change in management, uh, becoming a dinosaur, you know, whatever. We've heard it all. Publishing has gotten lots of disparaging press <laughs> over the years. But I will simply tell you that I was not uh, part of the publishing arm, but I was part of the tech arm. And although it was definitely true that there was a lot of change in leadership, it was definitely true that there was a lot of churn and, you know, lacking in appropriate direction at times. The one thing I would say is that I worked with an incredibly high quality group of people there in the tech side of the business. And I I had smart people left, right, and surrounding me at all times. And it was a joy to work with um, some of the people that I had. So we did well. And we uh, were in the company at a time when the tech, um, tech was on the rise and was uh, uh, seen to be sort of the future of the company, rightfully so. And so we got a lot of support for what we were doing while still definitely fighting against the tide of fear and uncertainty that came at us from, you know, various factions within Pearson. But, you know, for the most part, we enjoyed a period of good growth and uh, good support and um, a lot of uh, innovation and activity. And uh, it didn't all work out, but we got a chance to try. Nice. Nice. And how long did you stay there? I was there for about six and a half years. I think I had something like seven managers in six and a half years. So that wasn't always really stable. But um, uh, one of the things I actually really learned how to do there was complex stakeholder management. I know that sounds like a mouthful or like something out of a management book or whatever, but it, it really was a skill that you can almost only develop in a big a complicated organization like a like a Pearson or you know an IBM you know big company where there's a lot of big company politics and factionalization and you know people who hold on to information because they don't think that sharing it is beneficial. So my job in the center of the tech um, higher ed technology team was basically to just negotiate with people constantly and try to figure out what we could actually build that served more than just one publishing arm. Like it wasn't just for the math team, but was for math, science, literature, et cetera, et cetera, and try to build a core technology function that had to serve um, many masters. And, um, you know, that skill is, uh, is absolutely invaluable and you can only learn it by failing. <laughs> you can't learn it by succeeding. <laughs> so yeah, got to take your hits. I love it. Did opportunity come knocking and finding you, or did you decide you were it was time to move on? Um, no, it definitely was time to move on. Uh, there was a lot of change, a lot of churn. Um, you know, uh, it just started to become a company that I felt like that spirit that I was just describing. So why don't you just talk? Because I remember it was a time to move on. Why don't you say, "Yep, I decided to do X," and just launch into what was next? And I apologize for this. Sure. 
Yeah, and at that point, it was really time to move on. So um, I actually took some time off and um, was really eager to try. To, in fact, between every of my jobs, I really tried to be um, try to have <laughs> a degree of self care and take a couple of months off so that it's not just you know uh, launching myself relentlessly into the next thing because I am a bit of a workaholic and it's important to kind of regroup um, before you uh, launch into the next. Um, uh, next ambitious activity. So eventually I ended up at edX. Um, that was, uh, I got recruited to go and uh, lead the product management function there. And, um, and I was there, I was sort of there to be an adult. I don't mean that uh, maybe the way it sounds, but the whole thing was very organic, right? It just grew up out of the academic environment of MIT, and it was time to bring it to the next level, right? To make it like a proper company and to have some degree of, you know, governance and uh, management structure. And um, they were sort of gradually building out this management team who had experienced in lots of other different places. And, um, and so, you know, with my combination of experience at Pearson, my education background, my uh, development curriculum, anything, all the stuff, it was just a really good match for what they needed, um, which was, you know, some managerial maturity to, um, to develop a team. And so I had, I inherited a couple of people who were already there. And then I grew a team to, 20 something people spanning. Uh, we, I took on some of the QA people at some point when the VP of engineering left. I took on DevOps at one time. I had product, I had um, the design, you know, the user interface design group, I had the accessibility team. Um, and uh, and it, eventually I got the open edX team. And um, we took what was a notion which was that we should open source the platform that is edX. And we created an actual community of developers working in a governance process with people to manage that process and manage that community. We, um, you know, we had the first conference in Switzerland with a bunch of people who said, we should do stuff in a more normalized way, like open source projects do. And, um, and so we grew that, from just being a, a you know sort of an apple in the eye of one of the people who um, was one of our university stakeholders to being an actual thing, uh, which now serves more people than edX itself by a lot. Wow, that's so great! Talk about being a female technical leader. Were there lots of other like you? Were you like the lone gal standing? <laughs> I'd love to hear about this. Um, you know, in edX, actually, we had pretty good, you know, gr- group of people that was, you know, half men, half women, basically. And it was, you know, it was pretty good balance in the leadership team. So there we enjoyed um, good gender balance. Um, the other diversity, uh, you know, sort of uh, less balanced in other diversity measures, but at least in gender, we had a um, good, gr- good group there. Um, in MassSoft and PTC and even Pearson to a degree, much less so, and particularly in the technical side of the of the house. Um, uh, in all respects, at Massoft, it was just really you know a, a, a man's world. I did, however, have two really key women partners when I worked there. Women who I still love working with today, and who have been with me in other um, jobs, and who uh, you know we really supported and endorsed and and helped each other all the way through. I I don't think that either one of them felt that being a woman was um, uh, something of a, you know, like a negative. It's just that there just weren't that many of us. And, um, and in, in, in mass health, like I said, there was a super familial, very supportive environment in which people just were who they were and they had the skills they had and who were pretty, pretty, gender blind, you know, it just didn't matter. But certainly when we got bought by PTC, which was a challenging experience, as I've described, um, that was very male dominated, very much a place where you, you know, things got decided on the golf course. And it was uh, very much a bravado filled masculine environment in which women were not, did not have a seat at the table at all. Um, So that really was a, (laughs) it was real, it was a really stark contrast. And, um, uh, very disheartening to move from such a supportive environment into um, into a difficult place like that. 
for sure. Um, Pearson, you know, varied a lot. I think depended on the group. Um, and, um, and certainly, again, in technical teams, it's almost, uh, you know, always male-dominated, um, male meaning that there are more men than women, but it's all about attitude. You know, do they care? Does it become an issue? Is there, you know, harassment in the workplace? Is there sort of the assumption that you're not as good at your job as the person sitting next to you who has that same title, who happens to be a man? I never really experienced that at Pearson. I thought it was a very equitable um, place and, you know, really good experiences uh, for the most part from that point of view. Yeah. Before we talk about you starting your companies, would you just share thoughts for on both sides for male, female, you know, things that you would offer as suggestions for women um, to, you know, reach their full potential and what you could see um, those around them doing to be more supportive? Um, mentorship, uh, you know, either peer mentorship or, you know, uh, go, going up a level from where you are and thinking about how if it's important to you, you can get there. I think you just need to find allies. It's really important because um, as we, you know, move into talking a little bit about the journey I've had as an entrepreneur, I would say that, you know, there's no secret that very little money goes to women entrepreneurs. And so my experience actually there has been much, much more affected by my gender than pretty much any other experience I had before, maybe with the exception of that <laughs> description I gave you of the woman advisor who told me not to go into math education. But besides that one, you know, for the most part, I felt relatively well supported, even in very, very male-dominated uh, places. But in VC, talking to investors, trying to get my message across and get money, not uh, not an easy path at all. So the way that I really got through that and the way that I sort of understood my value and continued to be persistent in and having a message that I thought was legitimate, should be supported, was worthy of funding, and that you know I really had conviction around, I, I leaned on other women leaders a lot, both in my peer group and in uh, you know my advisors and other women leaders who have come before me in uh, forging an entrepreneurial journey, really, really important aspect of my ability to be successful and have the confidence to keep going. It's oh, wonderful to have that kind of network. How have you done it all with family? You know, being a loving spouse, being a great parent. Talk to us about <laughs> that. <laughs> Oh, gosh, that is so difficult <laughs> to describe all the ups and downs of that. You know, it is not easy um, to do everything. You can definitely do it and you might die doing it <laughs> if you try to do everything. I think one thing I'll say is I have an exceptionally patient spouse. And he really is unflappable. It's kind of amazing. And I think I just had to know like I pushed it a lot and I had to know where my boundaries were, but I would say that that is a huge, huge compass point for me, just knowing that I could just rely on him to be there to support me and not, you know, in a way that allowed me to be a jerk, just in a way that said, yeah, I got you. It's all right. It's stressful. Things are hard. I'm here to be and as supportive as I can be, while still, by the way, being in a bunch of startups himself. So, I mean, I think just, you know, the recognition of the difficulty that we both have in balancing and being very much aware of it and being um, communicative about it, really huge. And so, you've got to have somebody who's willing to kind of go there with you and like get into the really hard stuff. <laughs> so, wow. I would say that's really important. I got great kids. They're very autonomous. Like, I love that about them. They kind of incredibly independent. They have very independent streaks in them. And I'm like, yeah, yes, absolutely. Be independent. I don't know how to help you do that. You've got to figure that one out yourself, but I'm here for you. <laughs> you know, so helps that, a lot. That is amazing. And obviously, you know, you got that from your parents, so you're modeling it. You know, as you were in the startup, you know, did you ever just think like, ah, it's too much for me? Like I just, you're like, you're just doubting, should I really be doing this? Did you ever seriously consider it? Am I doing the right thing? Every single day for the first three <laughs> years. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I'm not, I'm really not even exaggerating. I just had self-doubt on top of self-doubt every single time. I'd never done anything like this before. I could 
I really learned the skills of navigating organizations and kind of getting them to be the places that I wanted to be by either like a lot of the times at Massoft, you know, I had a bunch of different jobs and sometimes I just wrote my own job description and went to the next person in charge and said, hey, I'd like to do this job. So I got really good at navigating the space of businesses, but this was like nobody to turn to, no budget to lean on, nobody to beg, borrow, steal, influence, nothing. I was just like, I'm it, that's it. <laughs> and um, it it is such a it is such a difficult experience to just um, have no net, right? You're just doing a bunch of stuff that you don't really know how to do. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we almost went out of business once, uh, sort of kept it going. And uh, I, you know, furloughed all my employees and try to keep limping along until we could get to our next uh, uh, round of money. And, um, you know, these are very, uh, this is common experience I came to understand later, but it was certainly very unsettling at the time. And, um, and I, you know, I, I think I finally felt like I was on uh, square footing after our seed round, like it started to feel like, oh, well, we're actually building something that feels real. We actually have a couple of customers. We actually have investors who are looking at us with real scrutiny. This is not just, you know, fake it till you make it. I felt, you know, more confident then, uh, but it took a while, three years, you know, uh, we got acquired the first company, uh, Riff, um, got acquired actually by the second company. So we consolidated the two companies and um, now we have a combination um, that includes all of the, uh, all of the sort of workforce transformation uh, sort of tools that you might need. So, you know, we sort of started as a course provider, which is a, you know, inadequate description of what we do. And um, over the years, as we build out, the programming that we partner with our universities on and the software on which this programming is delivered and all of the data and analytics that creates the f- feedback loops um, and the, you know, the coaching and all the other stuff that goes inside of those um, programs. I feel very confident to, you know, sort of talk about it as a place, uh, as a company that is driving a transformational way of thinking about um, work and uh, professional development. So, uh, course experiences that are all around digital transformation, digital disruption, learning about how to combine a set of um, you know technical skills with business skills. I think it's really there's a lot of material out there in the in the world that's around oh business you know go to business school and you you learn about leadership or you learn about you know some of the subdomains of business like finance or operational management. Um, and then there's a whole other, you know, sort of track and thread of people doing uh, technical skill development, you know, cloud engineering or learning Java or whatever it is. And what we're really trying to do is say, look, um, there's a whole other set of skills that combine what you can know about a technology to identify the opportunity domain of that technology and then to build and understand a business context in which that technology should be brought to bear and then take off with it, right? A lot of technology impedance comes from adoption. It's not that the technology doesn't exist. It's that there can't, there doesn't seem to be a path to get that technology to be adopted by somebody and to be used meaningfully in a business context. So our courses are really all about that kind of thing, really getting people to know what am I, what have I got? And what the hell is AI anyway? (laughs) What am I supposed to do with it? I'm over here. AI is over there. How do I get from A to B and how do I decompose that problem so that I can actually tackle it in a meaningful way and not just talk about it. That's crazy. Where can folks go, Beth, to learn more? Oh, yeah. EsmeLearning.com. That's where our catalog is. Fantastic. So we are the Say It Skillfully show. So let's do a quick segue. Um, sure. tough, tough conversation, challenging situation. I recently um, moved from managing uh, a whole group of people, right, in the, in the RIF context, and I, I handed them off to another, you know, to another manager. And one of the difficult conversations I've really been having is, you know, we, that team and I sort of grew up doing a thing, right? We were really dedicated to each other and dedicated to the cause. And maybe all of our software wasn't completely awesome all the time, but it was a pursuit that, you know, I um, did the best to keep my feet, my, my feet on all the pedals at the same time, engineering, 
business development, um, making sure that we had good relationships with our investors, et cetera, et cetera. She's now taking on the job of just being the engineering manager. And she's like, huh, you know, not all the people in this team are working from the same playbook. They're not all at the same skill level that I would expect them to be. And like, that is a very tough conversation where she feels really intimidated by the fact that this is my team, quote unquote, but she's got to be able to run her team now and really drive them forward with purpose. So that's a tough conversation and we keep having to have it. And um, I don't think it's done. It's not done in any, there's no malice. There's no, you know, we're not doing it with negativity. We're just doing it and it's hard. Yeah. I appreciate you raising that. That is when you have, when you step into the shoes of, you know, I can imagine you vacating, there's lots of love. There's just this just general like amazingness. Right. And now here you are and you know, it's a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. so I have compassion for her in doing that. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the word intimidated. Is that something that she said she feels intimidated? Yeah, I'm not sure she used that word. I wouldn't want to attribute it to her without, you know, sort of specifically remember the conversation, but, but feeling like she couldn't change the conditions, right? Yeah. I think feeling like um, that, that, that there's something sacred and has to be kept whole, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, um, you know, without course I, I never want anybody to leave we always want to keep everybody in our in our family in our house you know because that's um that ability to retain sort of the intelligence and uh, love right uh, as you build teams together you, you never like to lose anybody if you can help it but I think just yeah I think that that word describes the feeling if yeah. not the actual thing that she said yeah yeah okay that's gr- that's great that's helpful and I think you know I think of this as a bit of a it's a a grieving and then a happy new beginning and the ability to to empower her to say hey you know let's celebrate where you folks are and think about some of the ways that you work that are really we want to make sure we keep with us we're opening up a new chapter super exciting right yeah. but just give yeah. people a chance to say here's something that we would definitely like this we definitely want this and maybe we don't want this so what are some of the things that we're going to let go of say bye to because they maybe served us before, but they don't serve us now. And to have that as an open, transparent um, conversation. And then, and this is what I've used with folks is saying, hey, you know, what got us here doesn't get us there. And (laughs) right. So part of my job is to raise the bar. And that means I have to grow. And that means I grow and create space for you to grow. And that means some of the, um, with a bar raising means this in terms of capability, that and the other. I know everyone can do it. I know people want to do it. I'm here to support you and know that we all need to up our game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I have to say that, you know, I uh, implicitly trust this person to do the right thing. And so it's not even about her, right. It's really about, you know, the handoff and making sure that there's no, you know, there's no, um, Love lost. Yeah, right? I think that's the transparency thing that you just said. So look at this is, you know, and, and you know, for sure it needs to change to be better, right? Otherwise there's yeah, no way absolutely. we succeed. So you normalize that for folks. And I think part of the, the change is being up, letting people know that everyone has a role in contributing and ensuring that the change is positive for the whole, right? And that, yeah. that is, um, that's a great thing to kind of lead yeah. and, Super exciting opportunity. Um, well, I appreciate I you bringing like, that up. You know, oh, sorry, we- I do like what you said there. By the way, I just want to endorse exactly that, which is where, what got us here is not what's going to get us there. I think that is like the the thing that should be printed on everybody's business cards who's in a startup. <laughs> just, do you know what I mean? Like totally, such an important like sort of way of operating. And which is not to say that anything you built before might be brilliant and durable and it might stick with you for a long time, but it's generally not true. And you generally have to be changing things a lot in order to keep pace with the, the business that it, that it is becoming. So yeah. anyway, I just love that. I think it's I a love great it. phrase. That's yeah. fantastic. Okay. I've got to watch my time here. Okay. So let's do a wrap here. Sure. Uh, a few things to close. Do you have a regret or a do-over in your life, assuming you're still where you are? A regret or a do-over in my life? 
I think a regret I have is that I didn't leave Pearson soon enough, <laughs> right? I or even even PCC at that time. And I really feel this like maybe unnatural, uh, bullheaded perhaps dedication to my teams. And I think I do that at the expense of my own personal development sometimes, professional development sometimes. And, um, and so just in retrospect, it's not a deep regret, but it's like a lingering, you know, what would have happened if I had left those places at the time that was more right for me and not as accommodating or beneficial to my team, right? What would, what would that trajectory have looked like? Would I've had more opportunities or you know, I'm not, I'm actually not a person who looks back a lot, <laughs> to be honest with you. I'm sort of a forward looking person, but I do wonder about that about myself and trying to make sure that my goals are as front and center as the goals of my, of my team. Yeah. I love that you put that out there and I call it honoring ourselves and it's a balancing act. There's judgment. Yeah. And I appreciate the awareness that that could have been something that um, might've been, might've been a win for you. Um, Beth, what's the biggest compliment you received? <laughs> you are by far the best manager I've ever had and probably ever will have. <laughs> that was a pretty, that was a pretty big one. And I have to say that it's actually been uttered by more than one person that I've had the pleasure to manage. So, you know, that kind of thing just makes me feel so awesome, you know, because I'm not, um, I appreciate the rewards that come with building a successful thing, right? Software, which, you know, we've had, um, we've gotten awards or individual accolades that I've had in my life. But I have to tell you that that is a gem for me. I just, that just makes me feel like everything I'm doing is completely worth it. And, um, and when people give me that, that, that is everything. That's it. That's all of it. I love it. I absolutely love it. As you've reflected on your journey, um, do you have a top takeaway kind of on the outside in listening to yourself uh, about your story? You know, I, I often think of myself as having kind of a meandering journey. I was in software, I was in teaching. I, I mean, I actually still teach. I teach at BU in the, in the, in the business school, but it all kind of knits together in a way that reflection helps you sort of realize and um, and it's not as it's not as weird <laughs> as I might think. It actually all kind of matches pretty well. <laughs> I love it. Um, and you shared a lot very generously. What was it like for you to share your journey today? You know, it's it's actually good to think about where you've come from. I again, I just don't I don't think back a lot. I really do think forward most of my life because I enjoy what's next. And I enjoy thinking about the space of, of opportunity and the creativeness that that allows you to have and the excitement of the next new thing. Um, and so, the, but the reflection's good. It's sort of like, what does history teach us? Well, it teaches us how to, you know, move forward to the next thing with, um, you know, with new insight. And that's, um, you know, the reflection is really, that, that's what it gives you. Right? Yeah. It's fantastic. I have a heartfelt thank you uh, to you. You are being the change you. you want to see in the world. And it's um, and you're doing so much to help knowledge be power for people all around the world. So um, I appreciate you being part of the solution. If I can be helpful in any way, you know how to reach me. And uh, no, I am cheering for you. You take good care. Thank you, Molly. It was a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Joy for me. Ah, so amazing. Okay, folks, my thought for the week words from the Indian sage Punjaji. Stop, stop everything. Then you will realize you are the freedom you have been searching for. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Beth's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 